Father, we confess that so often we want to be king and we want our plan to be the plan. But when, when we are truthful and quiet, we recognize that you're the king, Jesus, and that your plan is the only plan worth living for. Help us, teach us today, Holy Spirit, about this incredible plan of what Jesus did for us, all that he went for, through for us as our king. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Mark chapter 15. We're gonna look at verses one through 20, page 579 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. And we've been going through this section the last days of Christ just prior to and uh, including the crucifixion, resurrection. And so we're looking at this in great detail of what Jesus actually experienced for us. And I want to say this. I have cried more lately than in a long time. Just as I've been digging into uh, these passages and realizing all that Jesus went through for us. Uh, and it has been incredible for me. I hope that it moves you too. I hope that it moves you to deeply love our wonderful Savior because he is the great king. We're gonna see him as king in the midst of his suffering in this passage. And as we walk through it, there's three different sections. And so I wanna see in each section, we're gonna look at Jesus' silence, then his substitution, and then his suffering uh, as we see it. So let's look first at his silence, verses one through five, our great king's silence. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Our great king was silent in the midst of all of this. And silence is actually a theme you can see in the scriptures. It's kind of interesting uh, if you do a study on that. But it's used in different ways throughout the Bible. Uh, in fact, you're uh, probably familiar with Psalm 46.10, where he says, be still and know that I am God. You know that passage? Now, sometimes when we hear that phrase, that's that passage, we're thinking, be still, I, I can just enjoy the wonderful presence of God. And that is true too, but that's not what that passage is saying. Okay, the context of that passage is all kinds of turmoil and suffering and, and great difficulties in life. And it begins and it ends with the fact that God is your refuge, that he is going to hold you up so you can be still and know that he is God. Other passages, Proverbs 17, 28, and Psalm 37, 7, they both kind of have similar 
concepts in it where it basically talks to us about being quiet. Sometimes we talk too much. I confess I'm guilty of that. Okay, and uh, in fact, one of the passages says that even the fool appears to be wise if he keeps his mouth shut. Okay, so we see that that aspect of silence. But the next four verses, I want to look these up uh, because they all have the same theme. And we're going to start in Habakkuk chapter two twenty. It's just next to Zephaniah. So if you go to Zephaniah and then. Uh, just go to the left, you'll get it. I, so I thought we just might as well just read it from left to right here. So, uh, so go to Habakkuk first, but once again, if you go to the page number that's up there for, for Zephaniah, just go to the left and you'll be fine. Uh, in Habakkuk chapter two, verse 20, it says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. Look at Zephaniah, chapter one, verse seven, next book over to the right. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Look at Zechariah, chapter two, 13. Just go to the right, a couple books. Zechariah 2, 13 let all people be silent before the Lord, for from his holy dwelling he has roused himself. And then finally, Revelation 8, verse 1, last book of the Bible. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. In all of these passages, silence comes before judgment. And that helps us to understand this silence of Jesus. He is about to experience the judgment we're supposed to experience for our sins. And so he's silent. He could have called down 10,000 angels, wiped all the Romans out in one shot. He could have used an incredible, you know, he's God. He could have used an incredible uh, way in which he talked in order to you know, prove that he was innocent and got out of the whole deal. He could have done a multitude of things and stopped this charade here. But he was silent because it was the only way for our salvation. He had to experience the judgment of God. Remember, he had already decided this when we looked at him in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, not my will, but your will be done. And so we see him, this amazing silence. He's willing to take God's judgment upon himself in our place. Now, we're go in this passage, we see the beginning of the civil trial. We already looked last week at the religious trial, the, the, uh, just the ridiculousness of that trial. And you hear they bring him to Pilate with a different accusation. And 
So I thought it'd be uh, worth our while to talk about who Pilate is, who is this, this guy, and Daniel Aiken describes him well, so I thought I'd just read this about Pilate. It says, Pilate was the Roman procurator, imperial magistrate or governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to 36. This information is helpful in dating Jesus' public ministry and is further confirmation of the Bible's historical accuracy. Pilate was a cruel and harsh governor who despised the Jews and enjoyed antagonizing them. He was also an expedient ruler who would gladly make compromises to keep the peace and stay in the good graces of Rome. Apparently, Pilate held Jesus' fate in his hands. Only one accusation concerned Pilate, so he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This title had obvious political overtones for Pilate and Rome. And so... The civil trial, he was being accused of being a king. Back in chapter 14, he was accused of being the Messiah and the Son of God. You notice his answer there, I am. But his answer here is a little different, isn't it? Uh, when you look at this, he, Pilate in verse 2 says, are you the king of the Jews? He answered, you say so. It's a little strange, isn't it? It's not as clear as I am, is it? So what's going on here? Uh, this could have been a serious accusation, by the way. Once again, you know, if Pilate said, yes, I'm the king, and I'm here to take over, get off the, get off the throne there, Pilate. Okay? Pilate would have called the guards and said, okay, yeah, crucify this, crucify this guy, right? Okay? But his answer was, uh, enigmatic, wasn't it? In fact, it's almost like when he says, are you the king of the Jews? He's, his answer is, yes, but. Yes, but. So, so, so uh, R.T. France, he says his answer was affirmative in content and reluctant or circumlocutory in formulation. Okay, I love that word. I had to look up to see how you pronounce it. <laughs> Circumlocutory. John, the Gospel of John, gives us a little more information on what's going on, on, on how to understand this answer. You say so. Look at John chapter 18, verse 36. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So just to the right there. John 18. 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I am a king. Jesus replied, there's that similar answer. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate. But notice what Jesus is saying here. He says, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. That's the yes, but. If my kingdom were of this world, I could call down thousand angels, wipe you all out. But my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is of heaven. 
And so we see here, and from this point on, Pilate begins, from the other Gospels we learn, he begins to try to get him off. He doesn't want to have this man crucified. He knows he's not guilty of anything. But here we have the civil trial. And more accusations are brought up in our passage. But Jesus was silent. Pilate is dumbfounded. Why is he silent? Why isn't he not answering? He's fulfilling scripture. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. Verses seven through nine is being fulfilled as we're reading this passage. I want to read first verse seven. Isaiah 53 verse seven It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53 is fulfilled throughout this whole chapter is fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. We, We will see this as we go through this passage, but what's fascinating, this was written 700 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And so here he's saying this detail, he will be quiet, he won't say a thing. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Jesus was silent. Thomas Manton, an old Puritan, uh, wrote an entire commentary on Isaiah 53. This is a beautiful, beautiful commentary. I just want to read Uh, an excerpt on this particular verse. He says, The main drift of the prophet in this chapter, as I have showed, is to remove the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense which lay in the way of the Jews because of Christ's meanness and sufferings. By the way, when he uses the word meanness, he doesn't mean he was mean. Back in the Puritan days, that meant uh, his lowliness. Okay, so uh, replace that uh, because of Christ's lowliness and sufferings. They weren't expecting this. And he's predicting ahead of time they wouldn't expect it. They looked for a Messiah to come fluttering with the pomp and royalty of an earthly prince. And therefore, when they found nothing but a mean outside, a despised branch and a withered root and a dry ground, a man of no splendor but of much sorrow, they did easily dash the foot of their faith and split all their hopes upon this rock, as if there were nothing worthy of the arm of God to be found in Jesus. Against this scandal, the prophet maketh many defenses and showeth the several reasons why the excellency of Christ was to be hid under the veil of meanness and miseries. And therefore, what a slender ground there was, why it should be turned to the blemish and disrepute of Christ. He goes on to say it was for our good that Jesus suffered and was silent. It was a voluntary willingness to suffer as we saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. He goes on, no, saith the prophet, here is nothing but patience and a willing subjection to his father's design. A willing subjection to his father's design. It was the only way. The only way our sins could be forgiven was for Christ to go through this suffering and death. 
Now let's go back to Isaiah 53. I want to read 7 through 9. Look at the whole section that this part of Mark is fulfilling. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Here we see in great detail, you can picture Jesus and all the things that he went through, all fulfilling this chapter some 700 years later. But specifically it says he was cut off from the land of the living, speaking of his death. But that phrase, cut off, is very important. There's another place in the Old Testament that uses the exact same phrase, predicting once again that Messiah would be cut off. I want you to look at it. It's in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Now, fascinatingly, in Daniel 9, we see God's grand timetable. Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, is God's grand timetable that he predicts. This is in the 6th century that he's predicting it, B.C. And he says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. Now, 70 weeks, all scholars believe he's referring to 70 weeks of years. So 70 weeks of years, how many years is that? 490, okay, let me help you do your math, okay, 490 years. He's saying in 490 years, in a period of 490 years, here's what's going to happen. To bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint, anoint the most holy place, to bring about the forgiveness of our sins and to wipe out all evil, 490-year period. Then he splits it up. Now watch. You'll just follow me, and you'll, uh, hopefully this will make sense. He goes on. He says, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, the anointed one, Messiah, Messiah, okay, Jesus, will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks, okay? So from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we know what decree that was. In Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 25, Artaxerxes writes a decree to Ezra. We know the date is 458, 457 B.C. that this was written in. He says, from that decree, seven weeks and 62 weeks. How many weeks is that? 69 of the 70 weeks, which is 483 years. Got it? Okay. Very important that we see this because in four, and why did he split it up? 
Well, he split it up because it says seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will, be a re- it will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. The temple will be rebuilt. The, and, and, I mean, not the temple. The, uh, the Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Remember, that's the decree. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But we know that 49 years after this decree, the streets and walls were completed. And so that's the seven weeks but then there's still the rest of it until Messiah comes, etc. Now watch verse 26. After those 62 weeks, which would include the seven weeks too, so after the 483 years. Notice he says, after the 483 years. You know what happened in 483 years after the decree? If you do your math, Jesus came on the scene. Jesus started his ministry. That's what happened. How in the world did he get it right down to the exact year? Huh, maybe God knew. (laughs) This is prophecy fulfilled. We have copies of Daniel that date before the time of Jesus. So it was not a prediction after the fact. He got it down to the right year when Jesus would come on the scene. But then he says, after the 62 weeks. So after the 483 years, it doesn't even say how long after, just as after. Here's our phrase. The anointed one, Messiah, Meshiach, will be cut off and will have nothing. Will be cut off, killed. Same phrase as Isaiah 53. He will be cut off. He will be killed. He's, it's predicted. It's that after he comes on the scene, he's going to be killed. It says the people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. The sanctuary was destroyed in 70 AD. So we know that there's a period of time in between the 69th and the 70th week. So it doesn't go all the way through. There's a uh, parenthesis, you might say in between the 69th and the 70th year. Uh, So we still have one more week of years, right? Which is how many years? Seven. Good, good, good. Yes, there we go. We're doing our math. Now watch, he tells us about this. Verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Now we don't know who the he is, but he does explain it in the rest of the verse. But in the middle of the week, the middle of the seven years, which is... Three and a half, you guys are good, okay? The middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. Apparently, the temple is rebuilt. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. It's the Antichrist. The Antichrist is gonna reign in this last seven-year period, which is sometime in the future because there is this parenthesis in between the 69th and 70th year. He's predicting in this passage exactly what's coming on. Now, we know it's exactly seven years in the end because the 483 years were exact. Why would the 483 years be exact and the seven years just be spiritual? You know, this is why no other system except premillennialism fits the scriptures. And I, I can't go into that. Sorry. Okay. Well, anyway, here we go. He's going to be cut off. We see this prediction that he was going to be cut off. This is why Jesus is silent. He's fulfilling all this because this is the only way our sins could be forgiven. 
this timetable could work, and eventually Jesus comes back and takes care of the Antichrist as the rest of the book of Daniel describes. So he is silent. Now, let's move on to our second section, our great king's substitution, verses 6 through 14, Matthew or Mark chapter 15. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Our great king's substitution. The true son of the father, Jesus, innocent and sinless, would be punished while the other son of the father, Barabbas, Barabbas means son of the father, in Aramaic. The other son of the father, who is guilty and sinful, will be set free because Jesus became his substitute. Barabbas was an insurrectionist, probably a hero to many of the people in Israel because they didn't like Rome holding them down. But we do know the high priest did not like Barabbas because they knew that if insurrection took place that the Romans would come and just wipe out everything. So the high priest, so Pilate, it seems like Pilate's trying to play this on them and he's trying to get Jesus off the hook, so to speak, by making this deal, but it fails because somehow the high priest and the priests, they arouse the, the crowd and say, call for Barabbas, we want Barabbas. Jesus was falsely accused for what Barabbas actually did. But Jesus is condemned and Barabbas is set free. Jesus was his substitute. And as substitute, we see a picture here. He was not just the substitute for Barabbas. He was the substitute for all of us. He paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And that's exactly what we see in Isaiah 53. Now let's go back to Isaiah 53 and look at the section just before the section on him being silent because we see at the heart of this passage, verses four through six, why he was our substitute. Remember, this is predicted some 700 years before Jesus ever comes on the scene. It says, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed 
Because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Notice he was punished for our peace. He was innocent, we're guilty. He was punished, we don't get punished. That's the great substitution that we're seeing here. The the penal substitutionary atonement that he died in our place as our substitute. By the way, this was God's plan from the very beginning. We see it predicted in Isaiah. We see it in the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. When you look at the sacrificial system, there was a meaning to it because all those sacrifices pointed to this ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But the sacrificial system, Leviticus 16, verses 21 through 23 brings this out where the high priest put his hands on the animal and it specifically says signifying he was putting his sins on the animal. And by the way, all the sacrifices did this. Even when a person themselves offered the sacrifice, they placed a hand on the animal, and we see why. Because it signified putting their sin on the animal, and then the animals killed instead of them. Substitutionary atonement. But pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And it was the only way. This is what he went through for us. Daniel Aiken says, Jesus was innocent but declared to be guilty. Barabbas was guilty but was treated as though he were innocent. Jesus died in his place. He also died in our place. That in an amazing reversal, we might truly become sons and daughters of the heavenly Father. Jesus as our substitute. And then we finish with the last passage of our great king's suffering. Let's read it. Mark chapter 15, verse 15 through 20. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him, getting down on their knees. They were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. Here we see his suffering. We saw it already in Isaiah 53, but in another one of the servant songs in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, we see this being fulfilled. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 6. He says, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Jesus says, experienced this incredible suffering for us. Our passage says, first of all, he was flogged. The Greek word comes from the Latin term flagellum, and it referred to a whip that they made with leather straps, 
and they would put bones and pieces of metal in the leather straps. And the Romans would whip the people before they went to be crucified. And the whipping, some people actually died from the whipping before they ever even got to the crucifixion. It was so brutal. But they would take the whip and whip them and just continuously whip them with this whip. The Jews, they said only 39. You could only do 39 lashes. The Romans had no number. They could whip them as long as they wanted, and they did. But the, the bone and metal would rip into their back and tear out chunks of flesh each time. Over and over and over, this is what happened to Jesus. I actually just read this, I think it was yesterday. Uh, they're, they're, someone's putting a documentary out because they, they don't like uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And the documentary is just basically saying the movie is just too brutal and cruel. And children shouldn't watch it. And they're absolutely right. Children shouldn't watch it. It's rated R for a reason because it's that brutal. But that's because that's what happened. This is how horrible it is. How awful the torture that Jesus went through for you and for me and kept silent. He was flogged. He was mocked as king. They put a purple robe on him. They beat him with a staff. Matthew says it was a, a, his scepter, and they beat him over the back with it. And they put the crown of thorns on his head, mocking him as king, but a crown of thorns to, to, to bring about that excruciating pain, ble bleeding from his head, from it. But the crown of thorns pictured the curse. They didn't intend this, but Genesis chapter 3 Verses 17 and 18, we see that God brought about a curse, and the curse included the ground would only produce thorns. And so clearly, Jesus here is taking our curse upon himself. And Galatians 3.18 makes this clear. Look at Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's from Deuteronomy. But here we see that he became a curse for us. Here we see this foreshadowed with this crown of thorns that he received the curse of God upon himself. Jesus experienced the wrath of God when he was on the cross. He experienced this excruciating torture throughout this whole ordeal. He's being mocked here. We see all that he went through. Do you know what that felt like? Of course you don't. How could we? The depth of agony and pain the spiritual pain of experiencing that curse, all of this, we'll have an eternity of trying to figure out just exactly what happened. And he did it for us. 
This is our king. Worthy of being worshipped, not mocked. In times of persecution, Christians have been mocked as stupid. Even though Christianity is the most intelligent religion on the planet. So expect to be mocked. But how will you respond? Our passage then goes on to say that he was humiliated. Once again, Daniel Aiken. I'm not used to cheater glasses. I got my eyes fixed. Yeah, and it's nice. Yeah, I can see. It's pretty nice. But I can't read still. So... So, I, I, I got a surgery. I didn't get healed. Okay, <laughs> LASIK surgery. Okay. <laughs> uh, just wanted to make that clear. Aiken says, completely alone, humiliated, naked, and beaten nearly to death, our Savior endured yet again ridicule, shame, and pain at the hands of sinful men, at the hands of those he came to save. Oh, how heaven must have looked on in disbelief. Perhaps the angels wept. The Father sent his beloved Son to rescue and redeem a rebel race. Look at what they have done to our Lord. But look and never forget what our Lord has done for us. He did all this for us. Have you ever doubted God's love for you. When we look at this, when we see what he went through for us, how could we ever doubt again? Of course he loves you. He didn't just do this for the fun of it. He loves you deeply. He went through this for us. And yet, it was all choreographed as God's plan to save us. This whole thing, all the details, predicted hundreds of years beforehand, the whole thing was completely ordained, predestined, choreographed by God for us. This was his plan. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 2, this is on the day of Pentecost. Peter is preaching and Uh, and preaching the gospel here, and he says this, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Even though their plan was to kill him, it was God's plan as well, totally foreordained by God. We see the same thing in chapter four, verse 27 and 28 of the book of Acts. It says, for in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Meshiach, Messiah, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Wow. Choreographed by God. Thomas Manton again He says, his great love to man showed in his wonderful silence, 
even then when he might justly have spoken in his own defense, but would not seem to interrupt the design of God. The design of God. This was God's plan from the very beginning. What is God's design? You see, true wisdom is seeing the design of God and living in accordance with that design. That's true wisdom. True wisdom is seeing the design of God and living in accordance to that design. God has the master plan. We cannot improve it. Every attempt to circumvent his design ends in tragedy. For instance, our society is rapidly moving away from God's design for the family. Families and society in general are seriously suffering because of this, and it will get worse. The church will be needed more and more for help, and we can help tremendously because we have God's design. We have God's design for the family, so we can help as they run into the problems that they're going to be running into. But the ultimate design for this world is Jesus' death, resurrection, and second coming. Absolutely essential, the whole package. It is an upside-down design that doesn't make sense to many, but is the only thing that works and can save the world. The world is bogged down with all kinds of stuff, with masks and population growth strategies, ecology and politics, etc., many of which have their place, but are really Band-Aids to fix a heart transplant. Band-Aids to fix a heart transplant. Jesus is the only solution. His death, resurrection, and second coming. What you do with this information will make all the difference in the world for you. I want to finish with a video that brings all of this suffering that Jesus went through for us and makes it real. Let's watch this.
this king. He was hated. We might be hated unfairly. He can relate to us. But it's not enough to just know these facts that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We must each personally receive Christ into our life and be born again. The Bible says that if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ and him alone for your salvation, not your good works or anything else, Christ alone, you outwardly express that faith in baptism, the Bible says you're saved. And all of this is for you and is meaningful. Let's pray.